Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That sent me on a deep dive into the history of Christianity, into the history of the biblical canon, into the early church, the early church fathers, and inevitably I encountered the Catholic Church. It was then, as I began to read from Catholic theologians, from Catholics in their own words, it was then that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about Catholics, was oftentimes completely wrong. It was based, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this podcast, this episode, this interview is a great one. I'm joined by Dr. Doug Beaumont. Doug is an evangelical seminary professor and a convert himself. And we dive deep into the the root of this podcast, the root of the question that got me started on this journey, and that is scripture and tradition and authority. It's a fantastic interview on some of these key topics, these key kind of confusions or or subjects or areas of misunderstanding between Catholics and Protestants. Hey, it was for me and for Doug too. We dig into those areas and we dig in deeply. Doug has some fantastic insights, having spent time on both sides of, I don't know, the fence? (laughs) What do you call it? He has great insights, though, coming from his evangelical background, steeped in that theology, that idea, that worldview, like I was, and coming into the Catholic Church. He explains it so well, and in his classic trademark style that I find so refreshing, and listeners to this show, you'll know this, I think, love it. His episodes are always among the most popular, and so I'm glad to have him back for this episode talking about scripture, tradition, and authority. It's a great episode, a fantastic interview, and I'm very blessed to have Doug back on the show with me again this week. This show is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Any financial support goes right back into the show, and I thank you guys for helping me to underpin this thing and to keep it going and growing. Anyone giving $5 or more a month on Patreon are entered into a free draw for books every single month. One-time donors also help this show go, and this week I have a new one-time donor to thank. Thank you, Amy, for your generous support of the show. God bless you, and God bless everybody who's helping to keep this show going. One-time donations can be found at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Thank you so much, guys. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation with Dr. Doug Beaumont on scripture, tradition, and authority. Please listen and enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. My guest this week is Dr. Doug Beaumont, a popular guest on this program and good friend of the show. 
Doug has a PhD in theology from Northwest University and MA in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary, where he taught for many years before coming into full communion with the Catholic Church. Doug is a catechist, a popular speaker, a YouTuber, a blogger, and the author of some fantastic books, including my favorite compendium of Catholic conversion stories, Evangelical Exodus, and his new book, which is fantastic from Catholic Answers Press, With One Accord, affirming Catholic teaching using Protestant principles. Doug, thank you for being here. Welcome back again to the show, and uh, hello. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always happy, Doug. And, you know, really keen listeners to this program will know that you were the, I think in your words, the OG of the podcast, the the <laughs> original guest, the old guy, the very first episode of the show. And I had a guest, episode number four, I think. You were my guest. And so you have a you have a place in the hearts of listeners to this show. And your episodes are always among the most popular conversations that we have. So you're well-loved here on The Cordial Catholic by me and by the listeners, as it turns out, Doug. Well, you pay me well so <laughs> listen <laughs> speaking of which i should say before we get into this conversation that that you are not paying me in bags of money to tell you and the listeners how much i love this new book of yours but i do love this new book of yours and i'm not being paid to say that it's with one accord <laughs> and it's fantastic i want to start off i want you if you can to kind of let the listener know a little kind of background to what this book is about and kind of how it's structured. It's it's so unique, I think, and I love having you on the show, Doug, because you have such a unique perspective as somebody steeped in the evangelical world, and, I mean, teaching and studying in that and then becoming Catholic. You have a great perspective to share, and I think in this book you've just nailed it out of the park with the perspective you take on these issues. So could you, <laughs> I'm not being paid to say these nice things about you, I, I, I love it, Doug. Can you let us know what this book is kind of all about and kind of the, the, the structure and the format of it? Yeah, well, after an introduction like that, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, so as I was studying my way into the church over a five-year period that was detailed in Evangelical Exodus, like you said, um, obviously I spent a lot of time reading. I spent a lot of time looking at arguments for different doctrines and just some of the things that were really troubling to me. Um, I had become convinced of Catholicism on some pretty big issues to the point where I wasn't really sure where else there was to go, but that didn't mean that I didn't still have some really difficult sticking points with certain things that Catholics believe and practice. And what I noticed was that sometimes when the arguments weren't really enough or um, they weren't um, maybe really what I was looking for. I, I was looking for something that would sort of settle my heart <laughs> um, rather than just my mind. And what I discovered was that a lot of times what did it was discovering that there was a kind of a parallel belief, or at least in principle a parallel belief that I already held, that if I could just apply that same principle to the Catholic view, it would make a lot more sense um, to me and in a way that moved me more than just like a bare argument necessarily would. And I started remembering these and writing these down. And after I became Catholic, I continued to kind of collect them as I spoke with other evangelicals and Protestants. I think because I was still able to um, think in both worlds, you know, still had a foot in both worlds. I've got a lot of evangelical friends and family um, and really good Protestant students that I keep up with. It, it was often these parallel principles that helped me deal with the particulars. And a lot of times when I would start to 
um, you know, have like little panic situations where I, oh my gosh, wait a minute, I forgot. What about this? I would remember, oh, wait a minute. That's just like this other thing that I already believe. It's just being directed to a different particular belief or practice. And, and I actually started keeping a running list of these because I just found it so interesting. And anytime I ran across one or thought of one, I would jot it down. And, uh, after I started writing for Catholic Answers and uh, Todd and I started talking about book ideas, I said, you know, I've got this weird idea. <laughs> I don't even know if I could fill a whole book with these, but I, t- I explained it to him. And as I started writing, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to have any problem with this at all. And so, um, you know, the book isn't enormous, but um, it's, it's a decent size and it actually covers a, a pretty wide range of Catholic theology and morals Um in a book that I think a Protestant can read and understand. Yeah, and I think it's fantastic. You begin the book by saying Catholicism is weird, which I love that for an opening line of the book. I'm like, yes, Doug, you have me. I'm sold. I love this. Because it is weird. But you go on to say, but look, like non-Catholic Christianity is weird too. So right from the beginning, there are these parallels of, okay, so we do weird things as Catholics, but look, as evangelicals, we did weird things too. So let's start off with looking at at what we have in common and kind of this weirdness, right? That's a great place to start. Yeah, I I, I started it that way because I, I just wanted to kind of admit that, yeah, I mean, even today, uh, you know, six years later, I, I still look around at some Catholics and go, that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Um, but I always, I mean, my entire, you know, 20 plus year as an evangelical, I thought the same thing about a lot of evangelicals. Um, you know, what's weird to one Christian is not weird to another. And it just, ha- it has so much to do with just our background, the context in which we were raised, what we got used to, that it's really easy to confuse our feelings of somebody being weird with something actually being weird. I mean, as Christians, we all believe in a God that is that is three in one. Uh, we all believe in a, in an infinite God that is somehow also a finite man, um, talking donkeys, you know, the, the list goes on. Um, if you believe in scripture, you already believe a lot of weird stuff. And, and, um, so just because Catholics have different weird things than different Protestants do, that's not necessarily a good reason to reject it. <laughs> the talking donkeys, that does, that's too much. It goes too far. All right, well, I want to start with the issue of authority, because I feel like I've been hitting this, and, and I should say this, I feel like I've been hitting really hard on this lately, and I hope listeners aren't exhausted of this, but it just keeps coming up. I, I interviewed Christianity Today editor-in-chief, and now Catholic convert Mark Galley recently. And I talked about the papacy with Joe Heschmeyer last week, and my evangelical friend and YouTuber Austin Suggs from Gospel Simplicity. And this keeps coming up, the idea of authority. And you nailed it on the head, Doug, in this book when you said that in some ways it's the issue that must be dealt with, you know, before all the things can kind of sometimes fall into place once that is figured out. And this is what I'm hearing again and again from, from recent guests on this show. So hopefully, I don't know, there's a theme going on here. <laughs> What's going on? But I do want to start here because it's so foundational. And you start off in your book here too, with the issue of authority. And I wonder if you can explain, first of all, Doug, how Catholics and Protestants understand authority differently. And then I want to dig in a bit deeper into this. So how do Catholics and, and Protestants understand authority. Yeah, I think it's a very important issue, and, and I hope you do continue to to discuss it, because I don't think that most Protestants or even most Catholics realize how huge of a deal this is. 
Um, there are so many Catholics that think like Protestants <laughs> um, when it comes to the issue of authority that they don't even realize that when they're talking with a Protestant, uh, how different we really are. Um, I read an incredible quote, and I don't have it in front of me here. I'll probably butcher this, but this is from Father William Most. He was commenting on the uh, Evangelicals and Catholics Together document that I was reading up for a symposium I was sitting in on. And he said that a, something along the lines of, a Protestant could come to accept every precept of the Catholic Church, and yet if they did so simply because they talked themselves into it, uh, they would still be as Protestant as ever. Um, <laughs> and I just thought, wow, that is, that's really hitting the nail on the head. I, th- this is a huge, huge deal. Um, the difference, I think, is this, that what the Protestant thinks they're doing, and, and I say this as someone who was for decades, <laughs> um, is, is having the Bible as their authority, and, and their highest authority, their only authority. It depends on which Protestant you ask. But the idea is that when it comes to at least faith and practice, the Bible is the authority. That's the rule book. That's what you go to. Um, what the Catholic is supposed to do uh, <laughs> is trust the church to explain things uh, having to do with faith and practice. Now, I said what the Protestant thinks they're doing. As all Protestants, I think, realize at some level, the Bible has to be interpreted. And so whether you are trusting in your church, your denomination, your particular pastor, your friend, a certain Bible commentary, the notes in your Bible, or just your own mind as you approach the Bible, there's always going to be an interpretation. Um, Protestantism itself is a perfect example of this because it's all the different interpretations that the Bible has generated in the minds of people that are responsible for all the denominations, right, and, and all the different views. So it can't be denied. So the issue then becomes um, who is the authority that is making the call between all of these different interpretations? And at the end of the day, it is the individual Protestant. So I think that um, just logically speaking, the Protestant ends up being their own authority when it comes to matters of faith and practice. Now, of course, the, the Catholic isn't left with their, their checking their brains at the door. Um, we have to use our intellect to interpret what popes say and write, um, what the magisterium teaches. But there's a very big difference because if we make a mistake, there's a body of people who can correct that. And that is something that the Protestant lacks. So, I think the biggest sticking point is that faith for a Catholic really is submission to the church. You're letting the church tell you what to believe, um, whereas with the Protestant, faith is just believing whatever you have come up with with regard to understanding Scripture. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting thing, and, and I think you make a very good point that I'm not sure it's even really thought about very deeply in either of these camps. I know that when I was looking into, when these questions came to the fore for me, as it did for you as an evangelical, and I suddenly realized that, wait a minute, there is this issue of authority that I haven't really even wrestled with and kind of just uh, assumed in the background that the Bible was the authority and then I can interpret that and then I can choose what church best fits my interpretation of the Bible and join that church. I mean, once it came to a four that I was doing that, that I was being the authority in that situation, and it did, that didn't look like how the church was structured through most of Christian history, that kind of became a concern for me. Um, 
let's talk about this though, because in your new book, you you unpack the objection that a lot of non-Catholics make to this imperfect-looking Catholic Church. I mean, the Church has made a tons of mistakes in its two thousand year history. Why should it be trusted to have any authority whatsoever? I mean, that seems like a pretty serious charge against Catholics, but you bring up in your book that some other leaders that God gave authority to, well, they made some mistakes too. So that paints a pretty compelling picture as well. Can you unpack the idea of this Catholic Church being a bit of a mess, but still being worthy of our authority? And and how we see that maybe elsewhere in Scripture? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I try to do in the book is really give the Protestant argument and, and try to, because I want to help Catholics understand Protestants as well. I, this is a book that I think can be handed to either side, and it will be helpful to either side. Um, so for the Catholic, they may just not understand. It, it, just, it just seems like Protestantism has no reason to distrust the church. Um, but when you consider it from the Protestant side, you know, they say, well, look, over here, I have this book that was inspired by God. Both sides agree. It's infallible. Both sides agree. Uh, on the other hand, I have this church that is fallible both sides agree, <laughs> not inspired, at least not in the way scripture is, both sides agree. So how in the world are you putting the church as your main authority and the Bible sort of secondary? That's that's the Protestant mindset. And, and quite a bit of that, I would say, makes a lot of sense. Um, the issue becomes not so much that the source is fallible or infallible, but rather how it communicates. We, we, we can talk about that in another section. That, that's kind of chapter two. But for chapter one, what we're really talking about is, is this church, like we, we all agree it's fallible, but like how fallible is it? Is it like really bad? <laughs> is it just fallible in theory or has it actually messed up a lot? And as Protestants will be happy to remind Catholics that don't know, yes, the church has messed up. Um, we've had some really bad popes. We've had, you know, things happen. Um, but one of the, I, I think to, to get back to the way my book works, to reduce this issue down to the principle, the principle seems to be that, you know, bad people are fallible and can't be trusted. Like that seems to be the principle. But the problem is if you adopt that principle, then you end up getting rid of a lot of the Bible too, right? Because Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, uh, was a murderer, uh, <laughs> um, and, and he was disobedient, you know, to the point where uh, he wasn't allowed to enter the Holy Land. I mean, that's how he finished his life, right, is in judgment. <laughs> um, you know, look at Jonah, you know, who, you know, endangered the lives of an entire ship uh, full of people to, to run away from God. King David was, uh, he, he won up Moses, right? He was a murderer and an adulterer. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so there go the Psalms, you know, there goes Jonah, there goes the Pentateuch. Um, and you start to realize like, wow, I'm, I'm actually trusting a, a lot of questionable people for my Bible. You know, you turn to the New Testament, it almost gets worse, right? Because you've got uh, James and John bickering over who's the best, you know, in the kingdom. Um, you've got Peter who, you know, I mean, he had constant issues all through the Gospels and then, you know, capped it all off by denying Christ three times. Um, you've got Judas. I mean, the, the Bible is not really like a library of like super trustworthy people. <laughs> this, this is, this is a frightening lineup of, uh, of writers. And yet, you know, Protestants show no hesitation in trusting the book. Why? Well, because they think that God did something to these bad people to enable them to write an infallible writing that, you know, that, that they can still have authority. They can still 
have infallible authority. And at the end of the day, that's all the Catholic Church is asking for the Pope. Like, we're, we're not saying he can't be a bad guy. What we're saying is that in certain circumstances, God is going to protect him from error. And it, it may not be the same mechanism that God used to protect the inspired writers from error, but what it shows is that the principle that bad people have to be fallible and are untrustworthy must not be true. And so instead, both Catholics and Protestants should agree that God can still use a bad person to create something infallible. He at least has the ability to do that. Whether he has or not is a particular that we can continue to discuss, but in principle, the Protestant really shouldn't have any problem with the idea. You talk about church councils too, and this for me was a bit of an eye-opener when I became was was looking into the Catholic Church because I assumed, I think as so many evangelicals do, maybe you're in the same camp, until you begin to look into actual church history and read the early church fathers, we kind of assume from the New Testament, there's one council that happens in Acts, Acts 15, I think that it is, and then, you know, we kind of assume that this was the first and last kind of council, unless you really start digging into church history. Of course, you know the, the, the creeds, if you're a certain kind of evangelical or Protestant, you've heard of the creeds, and you knew the councils kind of dealt with those. But the idea that, that we, we see a council happening in the New Testament to decide amongst different interpretations of Scripture and of how to believe and be a Christian, we see a council happening in there. And just assume that it doesn't really ever happen again. But what we find out, as you dig into church history, is that councils, as a means of deciding things, kept on going and and actually continue in the Catholic Church up until today. Was that a shock for you, as it was for me, Doug, when you kind of discovered that? I'll, I'll tell the story, because it's it's embarrassing. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if, if you read, and I'm not trying to pump my book, but if you read Evangelical Exodus, um, one of the authors there is um, named Jeremiah, and he was a pretty early convert from out of the seminary that, that produced all these Catholics. And he and I used to go back and forth quite a bit about whether he should have converted or not. And at some point we were talking about the councils, and I and I gave the uh, this this formula that Geisler Norm Geisler had taught me about there being one Bible, two Testaments, three centuries. I think it was like four creeds and five councils, something like that. I don't remember exactly how it worked. But Jeremiah comes back and he goes, "You know, there's been more than four councils, right?" And I didn't. I mean, I had a master's <laughs> degree in apologetics from a grad grad school, but we didn't study history. You know, history wasn't even offered uh, at this school church history or otherwise. So I literally, I mean, I couldn't have told you what any of the councils were, what they were about. I had no idea. Um, so yes, it was quite a shock <laughs> for me to discover that uh, not only had the early councils, when the church was still united, um, continued, but they continued for quite some time. And, um, you know, I, I, I had heard of Vatican II. I kind of knew that the Catholic Church had councils, but to me, it wasn't anything more than, you know, a, a meeting that they got together um, it was it was quite a shock to realize that the church had continued, you know, that this never stopped as far as the church was concerned. Yeah, it's kind of wild to to realize that because it's not as if Catholics invented this way of deciding things and making making decisions. It, that tradition continued in a kind of very unbroken type of way 
up until today as a means we find in the Bible for for making decisions on things. So, I mean, this we're talking about building common ground and how we understand authority. I think this is I mean, maybe a pretty easy entry point because we see it happening in the Bible and just to realize we're looking at history it didn't it didn't stop happening right yeah and you know there's some parts of that Acts 15 story that really should cause evangelicals some discomfort um you know it's 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 not necessarily obvious at first but like one of the things that I find fascinating is that you know this question arises that the church disagrees on and first of all, they didn't split into two denominations, right? <laughs> the uh, you know the Judaizers, you know, the, you didn't have the the the, the second Judaizer Judaizer church of uh, you know uh, Chicago, um, <laughs> you know that that's gone. Um, so the first thing is that they all got together, and whatever the decision was, we're all going to follow it, even though there was legitimate disagreement. The second thing that I find really interesting is that they got like all these people together for this council. You know, and it included the apostles, but in my mind, it's like, why was there anybody there but the apostles, right? <laughs> and he's like, okay, that, that guy, what's he doing? Oh, that's Peter. He's writing scripture right now. Okay, well, why don't we just ask him, right? <laughs> I mean, if St. Paul and St. Peter were in the room right now, I wouldn't be like, hey, how about the three of us discuss predestination and decide what we believe? You know, it's like, no, you just tell me, right? Um, and then the third thing is that they don't really bring scripture into it. Um, you don't have people throwing proof texts at each other and saying, well, look, it's right there in the Bible dummy. Um, and in fact, if they had, the Judaizers would have won, <laughs> right? Because there was a lot more scripture supporting their side. Um, so, you know, th- these facets are very interesting. And, and when you look at it more from like a, a template kind of view, um, th- this is the sort of thing that the church did to settle doctrinal disputes. And the idea that, that it just stopped instantly um, with the death of the apostles, um, is problematic because nobody in the early church thought that was what was going to happen. Yeah, and it's fascinating that, like you said, that that last point I find so fascinating that if if this if if the apostles or whoever had just relied on the scriptures they had, they wouldn't have al- allowed the Gentiles to to join the church in the way that they did at that council. Right? It was the fact that they met and decided to. To be, you know, the, the Holy Spirit inspired them. We'd say to meet and make the decision to allow this this change in what had been the scriptures. I mean, that is fascinating because that's not how we would have done things in the evangelical world. We'd have just consulted our scriptures and then moved forward. We didn't have this body of people with a vested authority in this council to make decisions. And if we had had that, I mean, it's such an interesting, I don't know, dynamic there. Because it, it, it wasn't a sola scriptura situation. It was almost the opposite, where the authority is in the church to make those decisions that then kind of uh, may, you know, step out apart from what the scriptures would have said in that case. Yeah, it just really doesn't look anything like what the evangelical church does today. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, okay, let's talk about the Bible. You have a lot to say about the Bible in this book, and you lay some excellent foundations that I think Catholics and Protestants can build common ground on. I want to talk, first of all, about the formation of the biblical canon and then the interpretation of the Bible and what principles and uh, particulars are kind of at work here. So let's talk about the kind of the formation of the canon. Yeah, I think that, you know, the canon of Scripture itself is is such an interesting uh, subject for uh, evangelicals and Protestants because 
you know, the, the table of contents is one of the first pages of the Bible, and yet it's not part of the Bible. And yet it's almost the most important page in the Bible, right? Because depending on what books come after that table of contents page, you're going to think that's what God said. If different books had been included, you would believe different things. If, if certain books had been excluded, you might believe different things. So where did that come from? Where did this table of contents come from? Well, you know, history shows very clearly that the New Testament is a product of the church. Um, and and so much comes from that, right? Um, that if, if the church is fallible, then maybe you have a fallible canon, because the canon could have been one of the things that the church messed up on. Um, and so I do think it's, it's a good thing to bring up, because the common foundation there is the canon itself. Like, why do we both have the same New Testament? Um, that's a really interesting question to ask. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that it shows is that, yeah, you know, in a sense, Protestants are trusting in church authority when they trust in the Bible, because it's by church authority that those very books ended up there. Yeah, and the one, I guess, pushback that I've heard before uh, from evangelical friends and evangelical apologists or theologians is, well, we would have got that canon of the Bible, even if the church wasn't involved. We can we can discern God's voice in these books, and that's why they kind of belong in the canon. We didn't need the church. Or, I guess the, the, the other route to take is that, well, the church was there to affirm the books, but really it was the people who chose those books. It was the books that were most popular that were chosen and put in the canon, not the church doing the choosing. Do you, either of those arguments kind of uh, seem to compel you at all, Doug? Like, does those make sense? Well, it, it does if you don't actually know history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. You know, uh, it's funny because, you know, in, in my early studies, I, I really wasn't reading that many Catholics. I mean, to be honest, Catholicism wasn't really on the table for me. I, I knew that evangelicalism had issues. I knew some of the big questions that I had that I didn't think evangelicalism could answer. So I was reading... Protestants on this, and it was evangelicals that taught me how, what really happened with the canon. So I, I, I'm not begging the question here by just citing the church. Um, it, it was an evangelical book on the canon that, that really opened my eyes to the whole process. And um, yeah, that, that's just not what happened. Um, there were numerous books that were used in the lectionary, that were used in churches that, that fell away. There were books that just the opposite happened, where it was centuries before they were really brought in um, and, and used in the church. Um, and, you know, even if you just fast forward in, into the modern times, there, there are still plenty of Protestants who uh, question certain parts of the canon, um, and, and Catholics too. I mean, even up until Trent. Trent, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, it was the Council of Trent in uh, 1546 that actually put the infallible seal on the New Testament canon. Now, the church had already determined it back in 382 with the Council of Rome, but that was a local council. It was never really called into question at that level to where they had to have you know a big dispute over it until the Protestant Reformation, um, and it was really more about the Old Testament than the New Testament. But the point is, even when Luther... And a lot of Protestants, you know, don't realize this. We know Luther was against several books in the New Testament um, for various principal reasons. But there were also Catholic scholars, like like legit Catholic scholars, that questioned the inclusion of some of the books in the New Testament. Um, and it wasn't that they were trying to get rid of them or anything. It was just, yeah, you know, this one seems a little weird. You know, um, so 
at the end of the day, first of all, it really was, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, whether you count it from Rome or Trent, um, that, that put that final seal on there. But I also think that it's just important to realize that um, if it really was just popular acclaim, I mean, there were other groups kind of contesting to be Christians that, that had different canons. In fact, you know, the early decisions on the canon were made specifically because you had people calling the canon into question. Um, so it, it just isn't the case that people just kind of eventually liked these particular books. There were a number of criteria um and even if you put them all together, you still don't necessarily end up with every single book. So, you know, I've seen attempts to kind of reverse engineer it, um, but they always they always fail uh, to deliver the exact 27-book New Testament. Um, but uh, if we trust the church, then we're pretty much good to go. And I guess the, the, the fantastic common ground to build on here is what you just said there, if you trust the church. And you have to trust the church. You have to trust the authority of the Catholic Church, at least at some point in history, to believe that the, this Bible, as we received it as evangelicals, the, these were the inspired words of God. I mean, you have to, at some point, trust the church to believe that, right? So there's a great foundation to build on, even if the evangelical Protestant doesn't realize that they're trusting the church. They, they are kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say tricked into, but they've, they've been duped a little bit to believe in the authority of the Catholic church one way or the other. Yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't think very many Protestants would be uh, happy with the idea that, well, we just would have ended up with the right canon. Um, first of all, history doesn't show that to be the case. But even if it had been, we would still end up with this fallible canon, right? Because for the Protestant, the people who just happen to like certain books wouldn't be infallible because they're not inspired either. And so you'd still end up with this problem that, that some notable Protestants have just pretty much sucked it up and agreed to that, yeah, we, we have a fallible canon. It, it might be wrong, um, which to me is devastating to Sola Scriptura, but you know, somehow to them it doesn't necessarily bother them that much. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about scripture and tradition. Uh, Doug, listeners to this podcast will know that this was like the thing that first got me interested in Catholicism. I say it in the introduction of every single podcast since the very first one. This was the thing that got me wrestling with the Catholic faith because a Protestant pastor asked me that question, what's more important, you know, scripture or tradition? And I was like, what? <laughs> so when we say scripture and tradition as two sources of faith for the Catholic, can you kind of briefly explain what we mean by scripture and tradition? And then I want to dig a bit deeper into kind of both of those. Yeah. So, you know, scripture is the Bible. Um, it's, it's all of the inspired writings of God that he directly inspired, um, you know, that can be attributed to him. Um, tradition has to do with what God has communicated through the church uh, that is not necessarily also inscripturated, you know, not necessarily also in the Bible. Um, so, for example, the the books of Scripture are inspired, um, but the table of contents of Scripture is tradition. Um, the the verses that we read that teach that uh, there's one God, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and that they are not each other are Scripture. But the Trinity is tradition. That word doesn't appear in Scripture. So basically, anything that isn't uh, written in Scripture is considered 
the tradition part of the faith. Yeah, that's a fantastic example because, of course, those things don't like I mean, the 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 canon of scripture does not appear anywhere in scripture, and the Trinity, those kind of things. So, in a sense, the way we interpret certain things of scripture, uh, the way of of reading and understanding things, like reading the Bible and getting to the Trinity, that is that is a tradition. So, in in a sense, it's a way of of or maybe a lens through which you can read the Bible, the idea of, of tradition? Does that make sense? Um, it, yeah, it certainly can be. Um, sometimes tradition is speaking directly to scriptural interpretation, um, but in a, in a sense, not always. Um, we would say that everything that was given in the original, what they call the deposit of faith, that is like the faith that was given to the apostles, that, you know, tradition is either in there or it is there in a seed form, you know, that, that's going to grow and, and mature. Um, but sometimes if we don't really understand the, the, the growth cycle <laughs> of the uh, seed to the tree, um, to use Newman's analogy, it, it can seem pretty far off. So, for example, uh, the assumption of Mary, uh, not even hinted at in Scripture, Um doesn't really tell us anything about Scripture. You know, there's there's no scriptural passage that gets cleared up if you believe in the assumption of Mary. Um, so it's not just an infallible interpretation of Scripture. It is also the infallible unfolding of the deposit of faith, some of which is contained in Scripture and some of which is not. Okay, so... As evangelicals, both you and I believed in sola scriptura, and I've had some great conversations on this podcast, and I encourage listeners to check out uh, episode 66 I had with Keith Nestor and Matt Swaim on this podcast about sola scriptura, a long uh, little panel discussion. It was a great one. But I wanted to dig in here a bit because you have a really brilliant analysis in your book on what common ground Protestants and Catholics have when it comes to understanding scripture and tradition. By talking about how how Protestants may be a bit uncomfortable with the Catholic idea of tradition, yet seem to affirm something else, namely sola scriptura, which maybe isn't explicitly in the Bible, and seems kind of like a, dare I say, a tradition of its own. So, can you <laughs> unpack that idea a little bit for us? Uh, sure, yeah. You know, there's, there's different versions of sola scriptura. It kind of depends on which Protestant you ask. Um the more crass version, you know, which says, if it isn't in the Bible, I don't have to believe it kind of thing, um, really opens itself to a, a fairly easy principled uh, response, which is, well, sola scriptura isn't in the Bible. You know, um, the idea that the Bible alone is your authority isn't in the Bible. Um, in fact, you know, as you go through the different versions of sola scriptura, you actually don't find any of them <laughs> taught in scripture. So, um you know, it, it requires some interpretation. There's there's verses they can pull out. None of them say what, what Sola Scriptura says. Um, but you can kind of put them together in a way that, that, you know, especially if you're predisposed to the idea, um, it will seem that Scripture is at least supporting the idea, if not necessarily teaching it. But, but at the end of the day, it's not right in there. It is definitely more like a tradition than like a Scripture passage. You're, you're not going to you're not going to have a very clear proof text. So the fact that you are just starting right off the bat <laughs> um, by, by kind of having a difficult principle to accept um, is cause for alarm. Um, the, the principle that seems to be true is that everybody is relying on some traditions outside of Scripture, at least to understand Scripture. And so to the degree that you think sola scriptura means a rejection of all traditions, 
um, you're in trouble because you're kind of arguing against yourself. I, I kind of hit into this on a bit of a different route, Doug, but I encountered the same kind of principle at play here when I, as an evangelical, began looking at the structure of my worship service and how we, you know, as evangelicals, we have uh, worship music and then kind of a spontaneous prayer with a lot of justs and likes from the worship leader and then a bit more music and then a sermon and then a bit more worship music and sometimes maybe once a month communion and then we'd, we'd leave, be dismissed. I began looking at the structure of that worship service and pitting that against, say, a Catholic Mass. And I realized at that point, as I was working through this in a very early blog I was writing years and years ago, I realized that I was relying on tradition. We as evangelicals were relying on a kind of tradition to structure our Sunday mornings that we truly had no idea where it came from. We hadn't sat down as a steering committee at this non-denominational church and said, here's how we're going to do worship. And it was like a brand new way of doing it. We were relying on tradition that we'd been handed on to us by our denomination and our kind of where we were, where we grew up. And I realized then that we were relying on a tradition as evangelicals, the same way that Catholics were relying on tradition to structure the mass. Only I realized that the Catholic mass, those roots, those roots of that tradition were much, much deeper than my non-denominational church on a Sunday morning. So I hit the same kind of principle here, realizing that we're both relying on tradition, but we were we were these sola scriptura Protestant Christians who who shouldn't have been necessarily relying on a tradition. But once you begin to shake the tree, as 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 you and I both know, Doug, in scripture, in traditions of how you worship, how you pray, all these things, you begin to realize that you are relying on a tradition, right? Yeah, I, I hope I didn't steal this from you because I, I go into this in chapter three. But <laughs> yeah, you know, you can you can look at anything in Protestantism from um, you know your high church Anglican, which are you know often more Catholic than some Catholic churches. Uh, they're very rich liturgy, um, all the way down to you know the Quakers who sit around in a circle not talking, you know, until uh, someone has a, a move of God. Um, everybody has order. Everybody falls into patterns. I mean, I could walk into any Calvary chapel in the world and tell you exactly what's going on. Um, you know, charismatics, I mean, yeah, it's spirit led, but you know, I can pretty much tell you when people are going to start speaking in tongues and I can pretty much tell you when the amens come in. And, um, you know, it's just human nature to, to move into these patterns. And, um, so, I, when I, what I'm talking about in chapter three is is actually the worship in the sacraments that, you know, we're not really that far off. Um, the liturgy may seem kind of bizarre and, and regimented uh, to someone that's used to a little bit more of a simple service, but the reality is it's a difference of degree and not of distinction. Um, and when it comes to the traditions, yeah, I mean that, that's just and that's just one of many. I mean, where did youth pastors come from? You know, why do we sit in pews? Um, what's a church building? You know, none of this stuff's in scripture. Uh, none of it's hinted at in scripture. <laughs> so, um, you know, th- these traditions, we just get so used to them. It's kind of the, the, you know, the fish doesn't know he's wet situation where until you can really step out and look back and you go, wow, there is a ton of tradition that's being accepted, e- even, even by some of the most anti-traditional uh, Christians. 
Yeah, and that was the big revelation for me when I tried to chase down the answer to that question that the Protestant pastor asked me. You know, what's and the question was, what's more important, scripture or tradition? And the more I dug deeper, I realized that tradition is informing so many of these things, decisions that were being made. That tradition kind of has an important role to play here, even in the formation of scripture. So it began, I began to ask some pretty uh, alarming and concerning questions. I mean, the answers were a bit alarming and concerning to me as I began to ask those questions, right? Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> and it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of evangelicals are asking these questions because you're starting to see like a lot of these resourcement books coming out where, you know, they're trying to ground their evangelicalism in the early church. They're starting to realize that, no, evangelicalism really wasn't around. You know, th- this is this thing that we're doing is not what the early church was doing. Um, so, you know, what can we take from it? You know, should we maybe revisit the church fathers? Should we maybe revisit the liturgy? Um, I, I did find it fascinating that, as, a, as I, again, as I was studying, I was starting to find so many evangelicals asking the same questions as me, coming up with the same answers, but just not quite taking it <laughs> to that last step where, you know what, maybe the Reformation just shouldn't have happened. Um, you know, maybe the schism just shouldn't have happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to, once you kind of sort of dislodge yourself from that total worldview, a lot of things start to becoming a lot more clear. <laughs> Let's talk about the interpretation of Scripture, because like it or not, when I get out and when I went out and bought a Bible after becoming Christian when I was about 15 in high school, being saved, I opened it and began to read, and it was kind of hard to understand. I made the classic mistake of starting in Genesis and trying to read it straight through, and of course, I was somewhere in the middle of Numbers when someone told me <laughs> that I should start in the New Testament. But that just goes to show that the Bible has to be understood and interpreted and read through a particular lens. And when I began going to church, the Bible tucked under my arm. It happened to be a Pentecostal church. And so whether I knew it or not, and in my case originally I did not, my denomination had a certain lens or perspective or interpretation of scriptures that wasn't shared by other Christians. And I have a good friend, Doug, and we occasionally spar. And, once, and we once got into an argument because he told me that Scripture interprets itself. And he wouldn't back down when I argued that even that was a way of reading or interpreting Scripture, even to say <laughs> that. So, Doug, set us straight here. How do Catholics and Protestants understand the interpretation of Scripture differently? I think, you know, Catholics can learn a lot from Protestants as far as understanding Scripture, because when it comes to... Um, maybe we want to call it like the secular side. There's just certain ways you interpret literature and words that is is across the board. The Bible is not a magical heavenly language that that you know somehow transcends human language. It's actually a, you know written in fairly basic <laughs> um, original writings. Um, I think the main difference really is that the Catholics kind of throw in a, a final step at the end, or at least they should, <laughs> where they kind of check their they check their work, you know, um, I've come up with this interpretation. Now it's time to see if the church has spoken on this. Is there something official said about this? If I come up with any conclusions that are heretical, um, you know, to what degree did I do the right thing here? And, you know, I think of somebody like Scott Hahn, I mean, here's this brilliant Bible scholar. Um, he's working within the church tradition and yet he's coming up with some very unique ways of presenting the material, of thinking through the material. I mean, he's made an entire career about talking about the covenants. 
Um, it's not like nobody talked about the covenants for 2,000 years. It's not like the church was unaware of its position on the covenants for 2,000 years until, you know, this this Presbyterian, you know, ex-Protestant <laughs> came along and started telling everybody how to read the Bible. Um, but there is still so much uh, latitude that we have in presentation and maybe, I mean, I just wrote a whole article a little while ago about wisdom 1117 and whether or not we should take formless matter in the scientific or the philosophical sense. I don't know if anyone's ever done that before. Um, probably Thomas Aquinas, because he just did everything first. But, um, you know, it's it's just really interesting how much work there is still left to do. But I think the difference is that we sort of have this um, this hedge, to use a Protestant term, or a Pentecostal term, we have this hedge about us from God of protection um, that keeps us from going too far astray. So, you know, in the same way that, if a Protestant were to lead a Bible study and then go, you know, I, I just, I've read all these verses and I, it really seems like Jesus was just a man and he wasn't God. You know, other Protestants would rightly say, whoa, 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 hold on. You know, like that territory has been covered. You know, you don't get to decide that. Um, go start a cult like the, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or something. Um, that's, what, that's what's left for you now. Um, but you're out of here at least. Um, the difference is that, um, you know, the, the Protestants have a lot more leeway because even though they might have to follow certain creeds or doctrinal statements to stay a member in good standing of their church or their school or whatever ministry they're with, um, if it turns out that they don't like it, they can just walk across the street. They can just go somewhere else. And the door is pretty wide open to virtually any interpretation that can in any way be backed up with, with scriptural support. Um, for the Catholic, it's not that open. Um, there are certain things that the church has settled and it's not open for a debate anymore. Um, so I, I think that's the biggest difference is just that last step of checking your work, making sure you're not totally off the reservation, and then you know, using your Bible study for creativity and personal growth um, within that circle of orthodoxy. Yeah, because you mentioned that Catholics don't turn off their brains when you become Catholic and don't read and interpret and wrestle with Scripture, but we do it in a certain kind of framework. I'm thinking again of my evangelical friend who argues his hermeneutic for understanding the Bible is that Scripture interprets itself. So he encounters a certain passage, he looks elsewhere to find things that help him to understand that passage. But him and I got into a debate over John 6, where Christ is speaking what seems like very literally about eating his flesh. My friend who doesn't have that in his wheelhouse as, to understand, he doesn't believe, as evangelical as, as we didn't, believe that that was Christ speaking literally. Of course, the Catholic Church says that it was. He doesn't have that as part of his, his understanding of the Bible. So he's looking at other verses to interpret that verse with, not the ones that we as Catholics would look at, like, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 or whatever, these different other verses, and, and then the history of how the church has understood that. I mean, we as Catholics are bringing a different tool set to interpret those uh, verses and bringing to bear the authority of the church as it believes it's been given this authority in, in the magisterium and this teaching office of the church versus... I guess, as you kind of mentioned, just different ways of interpreting Scripture, and you can find them all, lots of different ways in Protestant Christianity, even amongst evangelicals. I mean, this one example of my friend, Scripture interprets Scripture. That, that's one way of understanding Scripture. Another way could be totally literal. So everything you encounter in the Bible is just read literally. I mean, there are, are probably countless ways, and there are, you know, I know you have books, uh, bookshelves full of evangelical theologians interpreting Scripture 
in in different ways versus this idea that that the church has the authority to tell us what these things mean and and how to live as a result. Does that make any sense at all? I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. No, absolutely. I mean, um, this this was brought home to me actually at, at my seminary. I was in a hermeneutics class, and um, our professor asked us, you know, is God spirit or does he have a body? Well, you know, we're all a bunch of good little apologists and we're not Mormons, you know, so we all say, oh, God is spirit. Yeah, John 4, 24, it's right there, God is spirit. You know, what are you, an idiot? And uh, he's like, okay, fine, you got John 4, 24. But then he rattles off like two dozen verses about God having a body. And, you know, we all said, well, those, none of those are literal. And he said, well, how do you know, though? You know, like, I, I've got way more proof texts about God being in a body than you do for him being spirit. So why don't you think that? You know, I mean, there goes scripture interpreting scripture, right? I mean, like, how, do, how does that work? You know, it says God doesn't change, and then, and then God, it says God does change. Um, it says the earth is round. It says it has corners. Um, you know, th- there are certain passages in Scripture that if you throw those out there, it's like there's nothing in here that is going to help you. <laughs> you know, Scripture cannot interpret Scripture, at least in some cases, because if there's any question and it gets raised by the text, well, then the text can't resolve the question that it itself raised. Um, that There has to be somewhere outside of, of the debatable Scriptures that we can go. Um, and of course, you know, Protestants realize this, you know, you, you, I mean, I learned 99% of my hermeneutics at an evangelical seminary, um, you know, but, but a lot of it is philosophy, you know, um, a lot of it is science, you know, there's just, there's certain disciplines that we allow to change our view of the Bible, you know, did, did, um, you know, Joshua really make the sun stand still or did he make the earth not rotate? You know, there's, there's a lot of things that we just think are so obvious, and it's just this knee-jerk reaction. But when you really drill down, it's like, no, you didn't get that from Scripture. <laughs> you got it from somewhere else. And um, I think those are a really good way to establish the principle that, yeah, we need outside authorities to even understand what the authority of the Bible is saying. So then the question becomes, what authority did God give us? Like, what's the one that we can trust? Okay, you close your section of the book on Scripture and tradition, which what I think is really it's a really brilliant analysis of, say, the state of Protestant biblical interpretation. And we've touched on something similar to this, Doug, in our conversation on infant baptism that we had in the podcast a while back. And it's the idea that there are certain things in the Bible which seem to contradict Protestant positions. And when the Protestant says, well, where's that in the Bible? The Catholic can actually point to some pretty convincing places. I'm thinking here of things like the Eucharist, as I mentioned just now, being Jesus' real uh, flesh and blood as we as Catholics affirm, and evangelicals, for example, wouldn't, you point in the book to John 6 or 1 Corinthians 11, or that baptism, as we Catholics contend, actually saves, you know, 1 Peter 3.21, or justification by works and faith, uh, not faith alone, like James uh, 2.24. You point to these examples to explain that there are some seemingly controversial Catholic positions that can be defended through Scripture, but that this leaves both Catholics and Protestants in kind of a unique position if you can defend these things from Scripture. I wonder if you can unpack this a bit further for us, because I think it's really important to understand, and as we close this conversation, it leaves some room for common ground to be built on here when we're talking about the idea of authority and of scripture and tradition. So what happens when we can, we can muster up, you know, proof texts for both a a Catholic idea 
and a Protestant idea. What does that show us about how we're doing biblical interpretation? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun one. I actually um, turned this into an article for Catholic Answers, so that should be coming out in the magazine here pretty soon. Um, but yeah, this idea of, of proof text, you know, a, a proof text is basically when you give your position and then you just cite a verse. And it seems like that verse is saying exactly what you think. You know, like, uh, Catholics should not call priests father. Well, I got this verse where Jesus says, call no man father. Boom! You know, uh, <laughs> you're destroyed. Um, <laughs> and I think that, unfortunately, Catholics have kind of bought into the idea that Protestants really have the upper hand. You know, um, they just believe their Bible, so it's so much easier for them to defend their faith because they get everything out of the Bible, you know, like, whereas we have to also use logic and science and other things. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there's a, a number of proof texts that Catholics can point to as well. And you've already listed some of them, you know, the, the, the difference between uh, mortal and non-mortal sins. I mean, that's right in scripture. Um, you know, divorce and remarriage being unacceptable. Peter given the keys of heaven. I mean, we, we could cite a whole long list of verses that no Protestant believes, <laughs> at least not on the surface, not as a proof text. Um, so, you know, we've got our gotcha verses, and they've got their gotcha verses. Um, and at the end of the day, what it boils down to is, look, neither one of us is just opening up our Bible and believing whatever it says. Because if you were, you would actually be more Catholic than Protestant. Um, I, I honestly think that there's probably more Catholic proof texts than there are Protestant ones. Um and, and I'm saying that kind of derogatorily in the sense that, um, you know, if we just don't look at the context and we don't allow anything other than the surface reading of the text, Catholics can actually come up with, with more specifically Catholic proof texts than uh, Protestants can come up with specifically Protestant ones. Um, and it goes even deeper than that. I mean, you mentioned James 2.24, but, you know, n- not only is this a verse that says what we believe, that justification is by works and not by faith alone, but... You know, th- this is a direct verbal contradiction of the very foundation of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, th- this this is the heart of the whole thing. Um, you know, sola fide, the, the idea that we are justified by faith alone. Um, I mean, to found an entire Christian movement on a direct contradiction of a scriptural passage. I mean, if Protestants had a verse like that for us, I mean— that would be the end of the whole show. You know, like that, that's all you would ever hear is, uh, you know, that the Catholic church was founded on the direct denial of a Bible passage. Um, and yet Protestantism was now, you know, you and I both can probably argue both sides on this one. And and I, I know how they do it. Um, but the fact of the matter is if, if you can survive a direct verbal contradiction with scripture and you can survive, you know, a dozen proof texts that all say the Catholic view that you reject, uh, then neither side has really got a huge upper hand, you know, in the Bible war. Um, we both need to kind of sit down and talk this out a little more and not think that, that we've got you just because, you know, we've got this verse that fits on a bumper sticker. Yeah, and it just goes to show, I think, for me, there there is that reliance on something more than just Scripture. Some kind of tradition has to enter in there, some kind of tradition of interpretation. I mean, like you say, this this whole movement of Protestantism was kind of, based or, or or jumped off from something that contradicted a, a clear text from Scripture. So obviously there's more going on there, despite appearances of sola scriptura, than just looking at Scripture. There is this tradition that is being brought to bear of interpreting those Scriptures or packaging them a certain way. And 
if we can work from that common ground, that look, we're both, like me as a Catholic now, my buddy as an evangelical, other evangelicals listening, we are both working from some kind of a, a root of tradition, of interpretation of these verses of, in some way, shape, or form. I think that's a great foundation to build on, right? Yeah, you know, and, and the thing is, you got to remember that for a Protestant, that's going to feel like an attack, right? Um, no, I don't. You know, no, yes, you do. And, and so do I. You know, like the, the Catholic is not saying this as uh, derogatory. You know, I, I'm not attacking you with these words. I'm just telling you, yeah, we are in the same boat. You know, you, you have interpretation based on tradition. So do I. So let's move forward and quit thinking that we can just you know, do the Bible ping pong thing. Um, you know, we, we are both reliant on things outside of Scripture for what we think Scripture teaches. So let's look into that instead of pretending that only one of us is doing that. <laughs> well said. Fantastic point. Doug, it's a fantastic book, and I'm not being paid to say that. I really love this book. I love the perspective you bring to bear on these kind of questions. And I'm going to have you back on the show if you'll come back on to unpack more from this book because we've only scratched the first couple chapters here. Uh, where can uh, where can people go to uh, to pick up this book, to read some of the things you're doing, to maybe even watch you in person? Well, I guess not in person, but watch your person on video, I guess, these days. Where do you want to point them towards? Yeah, so, well, I mean, the book can be got you know, it can be picked up anywhere, Amazon, Catholic Answers Store, that sort of thing. Um, but DouglasBeaumont.com is my hub for all of my internet activity. Sounds good. And there's lots on there. Always new stuff. Uh, I appreciate all of it. I follow you closely. And read all your stuff and watch any videos you make whenever you make those videos. It's fantastic, Doug. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Once again, we're always very pleased when you return and the listeners love it. So thank you so much, Doug. I want to say God bless you. God bless your family, the fantastic work you are doing for the church. And thank you once again for being here. Thanks a lot, Keith. It was great being on. (laughs) Take care. once again for joining us on this episode of The Cordial Catholic. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Doug Beaumont. I always love having him on the show and love those interviews. Hopefully you do too. <laughs> I think you will. I think you would. I think you did. Let me know. CordialCatholic at gmail.com You can send your feedback in and I'll pass it along to Doug if it concerns him and you want to hear from him too. I love your feedback, the guys, and I write back to everything that I can. It helps to keep this show growing and keeps challenging and pushing me, so thank you. Thanks for that feedback, guys. TheCordialCatholic.com is my website for show notes for this show and blog articles that I have written. DouglasBeaumont.com is Doug's website. Check him out too. His articles, his blogging, his writing, and his YouTube videos too. It's fantastic stuff over there at DouglasBeaumont.com. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic to support this show every month. Thanks to those already helping to underpin this podcast. You guys are fantastic. It's kind of a dream come true to do this when I'm doing this not a job, not my, not my full-time job. It takes a part-time job hours, but uh, I appreciate being able to make it go, and you guys make that happen. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
Please follow, subscribe, like, review, and rate the show if you can. Those ratings and reviews are especially important to push the podcast out to new people. So please do leave a rating and a review if you can. Guys, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again next week. Please pray for me and know that I am praying for you too every single day, guys. Thank you so much. God bless and take care. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.